Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Your beliefs around money, they become dysfunctional when you hold on to them rigidly. And quite often there's an intense emotion associated with that. And so when I think about trauma, I think about something that feels like it's out of your control, something that feels like it's a threat to your well-being. Money has a lot of threats associated with it. Hey, I'm Dr. Brad Klontz, your financial psychologist, financial planner, and financial psychologist, Dr. Brad Klontz, co-authored and co-edited five books on the psychology of money. You actually can change your financial life, and it's actually not that complicated, and it's not the secret set of strategies that only rich people have. Most millionaires in the U.S. are self-made, most went to public school, most work full-time, you know, they're not inheriting all their money. And the challenge, though, is to realize that now that you're an adult, you have the power and the ability to change your life. I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So I imagine that the earliest money memories that we have in childhood impact how we then go on to manage our money and how we are with our money when we grow up. Is that true? It's absolutely true. So we have early experiences around money. And um, for many of us, they are, you know, innocuous. Like they're just things that just your parents said or things that happen, things we don't really think about. Some are really profound and like almost traumatic, but we all have these early experiences. And there's so much value in, in digging into thinking about 
you know, what is my earliest memory around money? What's my most joyful memory around money, my most painful memory around money? Because what we develop on top of those are what we would call money scripts, these beliefs around money. We're trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to make sense of how money works in our lives. And it, there's so much value in tracing those back. Now, the, the big thing too is some of these ex experiences your parents had or your grandparents had or your great grandparents had. And that's where it gets kind of creepy and also kind of fun because many times we're just playing out a script that was written for us generations ago. So I always think about, for me, my earliest money memory was my dad was in the military, so we were on this military base, and there was a soda machine. He puts in 25 cents or 50 cents into the soda machine to get his soda. The soda does not come out. So first he does, you know, shaking the soda machine, and then he looks for the number on the back of the soda machine. And I, I don't remember the exact details, but we spent like the next two hours going around to the different offices on base that were the, in charge of the soda machine and trying to recover his 25 or 50 cents. So what does that tell you about how I became as an adult? <laughs> yes, that's a good question. So when you think back on that memory, what, what sort of emotion comes up for you? Was it a positive experience? Was it negative, neutral? Mixed. I think positive, now I'm grateful because I really think the way I was raised taught me the value of money and how every quarter is very important. But then I also remember throughout my life being kind of embarrassed by these things that my dad did to save money. And as I grew up, like even in high school, we would go around on Sundays to dumpster diving, basically. Like people would be throwing out their trash, their recyclables, and that would become our new desk. That would become our new lamp. <laughs> and, and so I remember like in high school when he was doing that, I was just like ducking in the car, trying not to be seen by my other high school right. friends. But so yeah, it was a mix. I think it really taught me the value of money, but it was also a bit embarrassing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that was sort of the reason I asked about your emotional reaction is because, and I heard you just say it, you know, there's part of you that's real grateful around the frugality and around the value of money. And then also, though, it, it seems like it could have even tipped to the point of sort of like, ah, oh, like, are we being a little bit too frugal, a little <laughs> bit too cheap? It's kind of embarrassing. And the reason I, I, I'm pointing that out is because we will quite often adopt beliefs based on what we saw growing up or react against them. And so almost do the opposite. And what's interesting too is sometimes we will vacillate between the two week to week, month to month, oh. or, or shift as we get older. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing to explore. One of the things that I was also realizing as I was doing this exercise myself is that there are people when it comes to money that have a scarcity mindset and then an abundance mindset. And I definitely have a scarcity mindset. The way my scarcity, like obviously my scarcity mindset is very helpful in that it helped me to get out of debt. But now, even though I have plenty of money, I am still scared to spend the extra $15 on something that I want because I'm thinking, is this the best use of my money? Even though in relative to how much I make, $15 is very little, right? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you're mentioning scarcity. Obviously, that doesn't sound very good to have a scarcity mindset. <laughs> Ironically, though, what, what our studies have found is that people who are the most anxious around money, who are sort of worried about the future, we would call it a future orientation, they're the ones who tend to have the most money. So, so there's some irony there around. And if you think about, think about a squirrel who's not really worried about surviving the winter. It's like, well, you're not going to run around and gather nuts and hide them. And then you'll probably starve to death. So th there's a lot of value in having sort of that future orientation and being worried about not having enough for the future because that inspires you to, you know, delay gratification, to save, to invest. 
but you can take it too far. So where does the abundance mindset come into place? And what kinds of people, what kind of childhood experiences form people that have an abundance mindset? And then is that a good thing later in life? Yeah, first of all, fabulous question. A scarcity mindset, let's look at the psychology behind a scarcity mindset. So quite often people are coming from poverty or grandparents who are in poverty. Like like one of the things that can happen is that you can grow up middle class, but your parents and grandparents grew, grew up in the Great Depression or were so worried about money that you are living a middle class life, but you feel like you're poor and you feel like there'll never be enough money. So one of the beliefs underneath that scarcity mindset is this belief that there'll never be enough money. Now, what's interesting about that belief around all beliefs around money, they are 100% true in a particular context right? So mm-hmm. all these beliefs, the craziest beliefs around money make total sense in, in some sort of context. They become dysfunctional when our situation changes and we're not able to change our beliefs. So the belief there will never be enough money um, in its extreme will lead to one of two patterns. So number one, you're going to be like an Ebenezer Scrooge type hoarder, super frugal, cheap, because you're worried there'll never be enough money. And um, now, it's good for your net worth to have that mindset. It's not good for your experience of life, mm. right? Or another behavioral pattern around there'll never be enough money is that why bother trying? So, and this, this is a real dangerous one. And people come from poverty. It's, it makes logical sense why you would end up with this. There'll never be enough money. So why bother trying to save? Why bother investing? If I, if I have some credit on my credit card, I'm gonna go spend it all. There'll never be enough money anyway. So the scarcity mindset can lead to two different directions based on what behaviors um, ensue. And an abundance mindset is where th- this can also backfire also. I've, I've definitely seen people who have this abundance mindset, which you would say, well, there's always enough money. And it's a great mindset like to have a friend like that, right? Like if, if you're for friends, you have an abundance mindset. I know you're just going to pay for dinner, you know, and <laughs> everything's fine. I'm going to get great gifts. But if it's not true that you're, you're living a life where you have an abundance of money or an, an unending amount of money, you're going to quickly get in trouble with it. So how do you develop this ability to shift based on the circumstances going from, if you're on the scale of abundance to scarcity, how do you develop the ability to shift on that scale depending on where you actually are and how your financial situation actually looks? Yeah, I mean, your ability to shift your thinking really is sort of the pinnacle of mental health and actually success. It's being able to be open-minded and flexible in your thinking to match reality. And so, I mean, to me, that's, that's sort of where we're all trying to get to, is this ability to shift our thinking and our approach based on what's happening around us. Where we get into trouble is where there are really strong emotions or even trauma associated with our early experiences around money. Sometimes this trauma, as I said, can get passed down through the generations. So I'll just give you a quick example. So my grandfather passed away in a trailer park. So I did not come from money. And um, in, in trying to look at my own psychology around money, because I made some big mistakes investing early on, uh, I didn't know what rich people did. I grew up poor. I thought, oh, well, they, they invest. And, and so I put all my money into the riskiest possible stocks, started to make money, and the tech bubble burst, and I started to lose all my money, which got me interested in the psychology of money. I was like, why would a reasonably intelligent person do something so stupid with his money? And so I went home and I started to interview my family members. And I interviewed my mother, you know, what, poor, my poor mother. I put her through this in my psychology <laughs> training, you know, just picking her brain. But what was it like for you growing up around money? How did you feel about it? And what was it like for grandma and grandpa? And this is, started to blow me away. And I really started to understand my psychology when I found out that my grandfather never put a dollar in the bank since he was a young man, ever. So he was unbanked. So it's like, no wonder he's living in a trailer park, has no money. 
And what happened to him is he was a young man during the Great Depression. And so he went to the bank one day and all his money was gone. And so if you had that experience, just imagine the trauma of like, you're putting your trust into a financial institution, all your money's gone. And so what belief would you have from that? Well, he said, you can't trust banks with your money. Now, that is a very logical belief for what happened to him. We would say that's a very functional belief. And if he had had that belief before the banks collapsed, we would have been fine. It became dysfunctional immediately when the context changed. So when the government came in and started to guarantee bank accounts up to 100,000, now it's 250,000, that became a very dysfunctional belief. But he had an intense fear. And so all of a sudden my mother's fear around investing and her you know, ultra conservative and her really frugal and cheap, always a scarcity mindset, all started to make sense. And then for me, I came along and it's like, well, I don't wanna be poor like my family, so. I, I call it a dysfunctional pendulum swing. It's like I went from the you know real risk averse to like the riskiest possible investments, and then I got I cr got crashed and burned. And if I wasn't a psychologist, if I wasn't willing to like examine myself, I think I would have shifted right back to my grandfather's belief, which is you can't trust you know investing. And so what what's fascinating about this for all of us is this happening below our conscious awareness. It's driving all our financial behaviors. The results you're getting in your life right now are because of your beliefs around money, which we can trace back to those experiences either you've had or your ancestors have had. One of the things you said earlier that I feel like is a driving force for why I want to help people be with, better with their money is when you said that a lot of people feel like because they grew up poor, they too will be poor and why even try? And I think that being able to break these generational cycles of poverty and being lower on the socioeconomic scale is so important. What is your advice there to people who do say to you, well, I grew up poor, I'm going to be poor too? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I, I understand how you feel that way. And there's this thing we have to be really, really careful about, this mindset. And in psychology, we call it learned helplessness. And it's really, really dangerous. And the studies that have determined learned helplessness, do you want to hear about them? It's kind yeah. Of, yeah. All right, so it, it's actually really sad. But what they would do is they would take a dog and they would put it in a cage that was electrified. No, this is terrible. It's like torturing animals. But um, it, it's a good illustration of the torture that people endure who end up with this mindset. And what would happen is they would do a, an electric shock in the cage and the dog would jump around trying to get out, trying to escape. And then eventually it would, it would learn escape is impossible. So it would just lay down and whimper. By the way, just terrible, terrible science. But then what they did is they changed the situation so that half of the cage was not electrified. So literally, the dog, all the dog had to do was hop over here and it would not be getting a shock. And what they found is the dog didn't even try. It just laid down and whimpered because it had learned escape is impossible. And so one of the challenges and one of the reasons I create content on, on TikTok and social media is, is to try to um, give people a sense of hope and empowerment around the fact that you actually can change your financial life. And it's actually not that complicated. And it's not the secret you know, set of strategies that only rich people have. The system is rigged and you cannot achieve you know, success. I mean, I'm trying to break some of those down because I grew up with that mindset myself. I grew up lower income. I thought, well, you know, I, I had all the stereotypes. And by the way, I've studied all these in research to see if they were true. So first of all, I would tell you if they were true. But like, you know, most millionaires in the U.S. are self-made. Most went to public school. Most work full-time. You know, they're not inheriting all their money. Now, certainly some people do. And I hope my children inherit a lot of money, by the way. I'm not disparaging that. But just to realize that there is a path to um, bettering your life financially mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's accessible to everybody is, is one of those things to help break that pattern. Because when you grow up 
in poverty, quite often there's trauma associated with it. There's fear for your safety. You certainly do not get access to the best education, the best opportunities. And so there's some, there's a real part of that. There's not enough money and I'm suffering and I'm being traumatized around it. And, and the challenge though, is to realize that, you know, now that you're an adult, you have the power and the ability to change your life. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Mm. You keep mentioning this money trauma. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what exactly that is? And then maybe some examples of what are the most common scenarios of money trauma that people experience when they're younger that lead them to then feel helpless and hopeless when they're older? Yeah, so I, I, I talk about financial trauma because what we have found is that your beliefs around money, they become dysfunctional when you hold on to them rigidly. And quite often there's an intense emotion associated with that. And so when I think about trauma, I think about something that feels like it's out of your control, something that feels like it's a threat to your well-being. And money, money has a lot of threats associated with it. Like if you don't have money, it literally is a threat to your safe, safety and well-being and your ability to survive. So it's real closely linked to survival. And so when you feel like things are out of control, when you feel like no matter what you do, it doesn't make a difference, when you feel like something happened and devastated you or your family history, this is why I think growing up in poverty is just a series of trauma after trauma that people endure. And then meanwhile, you're watching other people who seem to be having a much better life you know, which makes you even feel worse about it. So I, I think trauma around money is anything that leads to that sense of disempowerment, that sense of um, helplessness and hopelessness. And I feel like to shift out of that, you really have to kind of dig back into your history and think about it with your adult brain. Mm. Because as children, we are just looking to make sense of what's happening to us. And so we'll latch onto a belief that makes sense. Like, like my grandpa's example, you can't trust banks with your money. That He never went back and revisited that with sort of his more logical adult brain because he was wrapped up in his emotion around it. And so that's really sort of the route to healing, if you will, healing that trauma is being able to look at it sort of like with a bird's eye view and look at it more accurately around what's, what's the reality of the situation right now. I understand my emotion and where it came from, but how do other people look at money who are you know, a step or two ahead of where I wanna be? What, what are their beliefs around money? 
That's so interesting. So if people are listening right now and they're resonating with this and they're thinking, I have money trauma, I feel this way, what are the best exercises that they can do to get out of that? Yeah, so if we're talking like money trauma where it's like post-traumatic stress disorder where it's having a profound impact on your life, number one, go, go see a therapist. By the way, therapy is incredible. Because what you need to do is really do some healing around that. For some people, just recognizing that they have this money script, they have this belief around money, it's not serving them well. Recognizing that, like, go back and interview your parents if they're alive, if you're able to do that. Relatives, try to figure out what is your story? What is your family's story around money? It can be so empowering because one of the things that keeps us stuck is um, shame. So we feel ashamed around money. The reason I, I talk about my mistakes and screwing up all the time is because I want to help people feel less shame. Like most of us have had terrible experiences around money. You've mm -hmm. made big mistakes around money. You're not alone. And the, the message I try to talk about is that the craziest money behaviors, your biggest money mistakes make perfect sense. Like I could take any kid, put them in your family situation, give them the experiences you had around money, and they'd probably be doing exactly what you're doing around money. I mean, it makes total sense. And so just recognizing that your money problems aren't the result of you being crazy, lazy, or stupid. They just make absolute sense based on your family history and based on the beliefs that you developed in trying to make sense of that history. Yeah. And it's so true that because money is such a taboo topic and there is the shame around it, you may not realize that the people in your inner circle, the people that you know, are going through the same money things as you. For example, you may be in credit card debt and feel like you are the only one who was silly enough to get into deep into this credit card debt. But secretly, there's probably at least five, 10 people around you who are in the exact same situation, but no one wants to talk about it, which makes you feel so alone in that and so ashamed. And then that in turn makes it harder for you to climb out of that because you don't have that accountability of someone saying, you can do it. You've got this, right? Yeah, you're right. Like that social comparison is so incredibly impactful. And we like to tell people like, like you shouldn't care about what other people think. And it's like, you know, that's bullshit. I mean, honestly, it's like we all care about what other people think. It's, it's hardwired into our nature. And it's really important to embrace that because you are going to be acting out around money based on that reality of your status within a group, whatever group you're, you're associated with or you affiliate with in your brain. Your status is very, very important to you. And this is just one of the things that it pays to know and pay attention to. Because the bottom line is we're, we're all crazy when it comes to money. We all are. We're just wired to do it all wrong. And if you think about how we've spent most of our time on Earth, 99% of our time on Earth has been in small little hunter-gatherer groups of 100 to 150 people who are closely related and paying very close attention to our status within that group. That is how our brains have been developed. And so when we see somebody who seems to have something that is a symbol of status, you're going to feel like you're missing out. You're going to, you're going to, it feels like a threat to your status within that group. And so a lot of social media is the worst for it, right? So I make a lot of content around, you know, myths about millionaires and I disparage all these like, you know, designer brands and everything. And I do it a little bit tongue in cheek, but you know, we're being sort of like all these images of Lamborghinis and designer bags. And you start to think that everyone else is living this luxury lifestyle and I'm not. And so then the impulse for you then is to go overspend uh, to get some of those status items so that you can feel like you belong. And, and, we, and you know, I, I just want to be really sort of gentle around that too. I mean, that, what's coming from that is, is this need to want to belong and to feel like, you know, we, we have friends and that people are going to look upon us 
in a good way. I mean, it comes from that sort of survival instinct, but that is one of the biggest problems we have in the United States are people spending way more than they have to try to uphold this sense of status, which really goes back to that survival brain. And so just understanding that we're wired to do it wrong, you can then interrupt that process. You know, you can see something and go, oh, I'm feeling bad about myself. I wanna go buy it and say, aha, I know what's happening right now. And um, a big part of what I try to do on social media is educate people around what actual most millionaires, how they actually spend their money. And it's very, very different than what we see on social media. So how are most millionaires actually spending their money? Yeah. So I've done some studies where we looked at a group of ultra wealthy individuals who had about 11 million in net worth. And we compared them to a group of people who had half a million dollars in net worth. So that's a big disparity in terms of net worth. And we looked at their psychology, a bunch of different things, but this shocked me. I'll just be quite honest with you. But what we found are the people in that ultra wealthy group. So they had 11 million in net worth. They only spent twice as much on their house, their watch, their vacation, and their car than that group that had half a million dollars. And that's what study after study has shown. Um, and we can certainly think of examples. You know, we're in Hollywood right now. You can see lots of examples of people who are lavish <laughs> spenders, right? But when it comes down to the average, like most self-made millionaires in the United States, they describe themselves as frugal. They have a frugal mindset. They're thinking about saving. They're actually worried about the future. So they're they're willing to delay gratification. And that's that's really the way to climb out of poverty and to climb the socioeconomic ladder. It has to be a focus on the future and I'm going to save and invest and because I value owning my time, I value freedom. When people are really attached to items and we would call it materialistic, materialism, there's a lot of studies on this, they tend to have lower income, lower net worth, lower financial health, and they tend to be frankly more depressed. You were talking about this concept of the reason we tend to overspend within our circles is because we want to, we feel the need to belong. We want to show that if your neighbor can buy this beautiful $500,000 house, well, so can I. If they can drive this beautiful car, well, so can I. And I know how that feels because I remember in high school, all the cool kids, they were wearing these American Eagle jeans and I really, really wanted it. But obviously my parents were like, no, no, that's too expensive. And then we went to a thrift store and I found these American Eagle jeans. So I bought them and I just felt so proud and so excited. And that need to belong continued even after high school. In college, I was going out and spending all of my paycheck from working at the local subway. I was spending it all at the mall on these shoes so that I could be like the cool one with the cool shoes. And that need to belong is deep and strong. How do we get out of that? Or is there not a way out? Well, it really does depend on your comparison group. I mean, so that's one of the hacks is like come up with a different comparison group. I mean, <laughs> that's just the bottom line. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about sharing the information around how do people become wealthy and how do they actually spend? Because what I have done is I now associate in my own brain sort of lavish displays of status objects as being an indication that somebody probably doesn't have a lot of net worth. Or number two, that they feel bad about themselves in some way. So they do want people to look at them in a certain way, which tells you that they have a little bit more insecurity, you know, which, which is probably what you had around the genes. And yeah. I mean, certainly like, in, and by the way, I'm not trying to disparage people who do this. Like when I got out of grad school, I was 29 years old. I owed $100,000 in student loan debt. I was broke. And I immediately went out and bought like a luxury watch, an Omega watch. I went and bought my mom 
a real thick like um, Hawaiian heirloom bracelet. I was living in Hawaii at the time, like solid gold. I mean, I, I was like, I was doing exactly all the things that I try to caution people against, and, but I know exactly why I did it. I, I grew up poor. I was sick of being poor. I, I wanted to show the world I made it. I wanted to show how my, my mom, how much I appreciated all of her sacrifice in her life to help me get where I was. And, um, but on, in any objective standard, it was <laughs> the absolute wrong thing to do. I mean, I couldn't afford it. I didn't have the money. And I thought that this is what rich people did. And so you, we see a lot of that. We see a lot of people who um, grew up in humble beginnings who have gone to school, perhaps, you know, they're now making $100,000 and they immediately go out and do all the things they think that rich people do. So they go, they buy a luxury watch, they buy an expensive suit, they uh, lease a very expensive luxury car, thinking that this is what people do. It's actually not what most people do. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. Do you think because we had these similar experiences of wanting to belong and overspending, mm -hmm. do you think that we grew out of it? Do you think that we started making enough money where we didn't feel that need to belong as strongly? Like, what do you think happened? You know, I would be lying if I said that I didn't still have those feelings inside of me. And, you know, I, I was, it's so funny because about three years ago, I was telling my wife, we got to get a van. We got to get like a, you know, I want to get a sprinter van and we're going to build it all out. And, and what, what I found myself doing was talking about how it made so much sense, you know, how we we're going to be doing this thing. And then literally I was doing this for like three months, drawing up plans and all this. And then one day I was walking to work. So I walked to live in Boulder. It's beautiful. I just walk along the mountains over to my office. I saw a sprinter van and I was like, I'm going to count how many sprinter vans I see on the way to my, my office. And I think I saw like 14 of them. And I, I had this awareness that, how much, you know, I, I want this sprinter van because I'm seeing everyone else around me have it. Now, I, that's not what I thought. When I had that, that mindset, I, I actually came to my wife with all these very logical reasons about why this made sense, you know? But to, when, I, when I had that awareness, it really flipped on a light bulb and I looked at the whole thing very differently and I realized actually this was the, the latest iteration of me feeling like I wanted to fit in, mm -hmm. feeling like I wanted to belong, feeling like I didn't want to feel like I had less than the people around me. Interesting. I yes. don't even know what a sprinter van is, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let me talk more about it because then you're going to feel like you need one. <laughs> then you can justify it, it. Yeah, all the cool kids have it, Erica. Oh, wow. They all have it. one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. For me, I really, I don't feel like I spend to prove anything now. And if I had a choice, I would just wear my sweatshirt and my jeans every day 
My team recently has gotten on me though. Like they made me in the trash over there is my pair of jeans. I think I bought them when I was in college over a decade ago. And they were like, first of all, skinny jeans are out and they look worn and gross. <laughs> and then they also throw away my mom's shoes. I got hand-me-downs from my mom and I was so excited about these cute boots and packing them for this trip. And they were like, no, those don't look good. They threw them away. And someone was like, oh, well, are the hand-me-downs like, you know, vintage Chanel or something? And I was like, no, they're Aldo. They were like $70 shoes. And my mom wore them for a few years and then handed them back to me. But the only reason I'm doing it now is because my team is forcing me to. And apparently, like, I have to look a certain way. To... <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's just recognizing that I have that vulnerability. And that I probably always will, because I am going to be concerned at some level of how people perceive me. And what's so fascinating around the whole status thing is that you can belong to a group where the highest status is wearing the worst clothes. And people who are sort of anti-cultural establishment, what's so funny is they sort of tend to group together and all kind of look in a, look in a similar way. And I, so, so for me, I feel like there's so much value in just recognizing that we're vulnerable to this idea of where, where do I fit within the group, and that sometimes that can leave us vulnerable to... Uh, you know, engaging in financial behaviors that aren't really good for us. What are the worst, like the three worst things that people are doing with their money? The three worst things. You know, part of it comes from a, a desire to climb the socioeconomic ladder. And so one of the things that, that really concerns me the most, and it's so hard to watch, is people who, you know, it, it's cliche to say get rich quick, but people who just fall into these schemes of trying to become wealthy quickly. It's actually what got me on TikTok. I, I, my nephews were showing me that app, and then all of a sudden I saw people talking about day trading, and I'm like, oh my God, day trading's back? You gotta be kidding me. So there's so many of these things that are set up to take money from people who most need it. And so it's that impulse that I'm gonna change my entire family, generational history around money, but I need to do it fast. You know, I want to do it quickly. And so they get suckered in. I hear, and people will like mimic my profile. And then I get these terrible stories where people, you know, I gave them $1,000 because they said they were going to turn it into 10000 And man, it's really easy to look at people and, and shake your head and say, why would you do that? But I understand why they do it. They're, they're desperate to want to become wealthy. They're not sure how to do it. So it's falling for those get rich quick schemes that uh, just seems to just continue to happen over and over and over. It's mm. something that, that um, is, is just devastating for people. What's number two? I think number two might be not, not having sort of that future orientation, okay? And so there's actually nothing more boring than like an amorphous savings account or a retirement account, that kind of thing. Because what we have to do is we have to overcome our instinct to enjoy things right now because that's how we're wired. And again, let's go back to that, that um, hunter-gatherer group. You couldn't save anything for 99% of our time on earth. Food would spoil. You can only bring with you what you could carry. So we are wired to consume. We are consumers. Food, you know? I mean, like, how many people struggle with their diet? Everybody does because there's an abundance of food. There's sugar, salt, fat. I mean, that's what we crave. And, and we want to eat as much as we possibly can. And then our bodies also don't want to move much, you know? You want to, mm -hmm. like, hold on to those calories. This is all part of that survival brain. And so that consumption mentality is just built into us. So how do you overcome that? Well, you have to have a super exciting vision of the future. And so I, we actually did a study on this where we got people to increase their savings rates by 73% after one hour of visualizing why they would want to save to begin with. So 
pick your top three financial goals is what we did in the study. And then we had people do vision boards. We had them create visual representations of those goals. Think about what values are associated with those goals. Is this about freedom? Is this about family? Is this about connection, about fun? What is it? Why are we doing this? And then, then we had them automate and just you know name accounts after those goals and then just automatically send money over to those goals. 73% increase in savings after one hour of doing that. So having a very clear vision of why you're going to be sacrificing and delaying gratification, super important. So people who don't have that vision, it's a huge mistake because they're just going to be wired to spend right now. That's so good. And number three. Oh, number three. So I got the get rich quick. I would say this is a, a caveat of that, but it, but let's just talk about investing in general. So many people, actually most people who invest do do terrible at it. I mean, they, they we've done studies as a profession. Actually, studies show that dead people outperform living when it comes to investing. And women outperform men. And one of the reasons that uh, both of those are the case is that uh, you know dead people and women are less confident in their ability to beat the market. So they actually trade less. Dead people trade way less. <laughs> and women trade less. And so what, what studies have found is the more you trade, the worse you do. And, and the irony is that people think that the more they trade, the better they do. The irony is the more people trade. Yeah, the irony is that the more people trade, the worse they do. But we think that we're going to do better the more we trade because the more we know, right? And so trying to beat the market is another just sort of devastating approach people do when it comes to money. And what I always tell people is, so first of all, wealthy people aren't at their computer trading all day. That's not what they're doing, okay? What they're doing is they're making money and they're looking for ways to make more money. But more importantly, they are saving and investing a percentage of every dollar they make. And so... Like right now, if you're not saving and investing a percentage of every dollar you make, that, that is my number one piece of advice. Um, and the earlier you start it, the better it is, obviously. But that is sort of the mindset you have to have if you want to become wealthy. I think the thing you brought up about delayed gratification is so important because that is probably the skill that the most number of people lack that leads them to not end up in the financial position that they should be. Because also technology around us makes delayed gratification even harder. Like there are these studies that showed that Amazon used to have maybe two clicks to get to the actual buy button. Now it's just the buy now instantly. They've removed so many barriers that once took that extra like two, three seconds for you to think, oh, do I really want to buy this? Now it's just like click, it's shipped. <laughs> yeah. And delaying gratification, again, it goes against our, our biological wiring. We're not wired to do that. So you have to overcome that. And so I think the hack around that is, you know, getting really excited about those goals, being able to picture them and leave pictures around your house, you know, just be reminding yourself about why this is important to you. Did you find that most of the goals were around buying a first house or getting out of debt? What were, during that study, what were the goals? That yeah, we didn't really track it, but we, we saw patterns around, there were some, you know, midterm goals and long-term goals. So for a lot of people, there was a sense of financial freedom, which by the way, I like better than retirement. Retirement means to stop engaging in a purposeful pursuit. And so people actually sabotage themselves thinking that I'm going to stop working. So I think I like reframing it to freedom. And then what are you going to do with that freedom? Like, no, specifically, where are you? Who's there? What does every day look like? Spend some time really fleshing that out because that's the motivation you need. And then the other key is to um, harness our, it's called a status quo bias, where we're basically we're all a bit lazy. And so if you've ever belonged to a gym for months after you stopped going, that's the power of the status quo bias. So get really specific about your goals, be it financial freedom, be it a car, be it, you know, a house, and then set up accounts and then automate every month to those goals. And then just work with the rest that's in your bank account to fund your life. But you, if you're not paying yourself first in those ways, you're really never going to get ahead. 
when you are studying these people who do end up being able to climb the socioeconomic ladder and do really well financially versus those who don't, are there specific traits that they have in common or tend to have in common? Yeah, so I've, I've talked about some of the spending habits and sort of the mindsets around, you know, wow, they don't spend nearly as much as we think they do. And they actually describe themselves as frugal. We've also found several specific mindsets. So one of them is being vigilant around money. So there's a you know, focus on saving and investing for the future. But there's some things that they don't have too, which are really important. So one of them is what we would call money avoidance. And this is beliefs like rich people are greedy, money corrupts. There's virtue in having less money. You know, if you have that negative association with rich people and money, again, it, you come by it honestly. There, I guarantee in, the, in your past, you've, you've run across or your relatives have run across some really nasty rich people out there. And by the way, there are terrible rich people out there. There's also terrible poor people. So it's not really necessarily about the money, but having that negative association, very, very difficult. We've talked about status, and this is really interesting too. People who are most focused on status have the least amount of money mm. and, and are more likely to have grown up poor. And so ironically, when you ask ultra wealthy people, they would say that they would actually tell you they make less than they actually do. When you ask people who make less, they're actually likely to tell you they make more than they actually do. So it's, so it's, it's a big eye, you know, I mean, when you see social media, this should just blow your mind. So, so the cue is to, when people are really, really promoting themselves as having all this stuff, you gotta have in the back of your mind, oh, studies show that those people who do that actually end up having less. And if you look behind the curtain, a lot of times they're trying to sell something, right? So yeah. they're trying to sell this image. And the other thing too, and this is, this is really profound, it's, it's called um, locus of control. So this is a mindset. And locus of control basically means location of control. So there's an internal locus of control and an external locus of control. So the question is this, the outcomes you're getting in life, are they because of you or because of things outside of you? And um, this goes back to that learned helplessness stuff, but every study that's ever been done around income, wealth, success, bouncing back quickly after a tragedy, academic success, people who have an internal locus of control. So they say, the outcomes I'm getting in life are because of me. The mistakes that I've made in life are because of me. You know, my lack of satisfaction in my relationship, I have an impact on that. It turns out that having that internal locus control is associated with success in every area of life versus focusing more on external factors for why, why you are where you are. That's interesting because one of my favorite podcasts I used to listen to all the time is How I Built This. And at the end, they ask these very successful entrepreneurs, the question goes, how much of your success do you think is because of luck? And how much do you think is because of your hard work and your work ethic and your skills? And it's always interesting to hear their responses. And that's really what you're talking about, right? Because I guess the ones that have a higher external locus of control are going to think it's all towards luck. And the ones that have a higher internal locus of control are going to say it's because of their hard work, right? But I, I assume it's more important on the other side where you're talking to people who are who have not found that level of success, you want to understand whether they think the reason that they have not found that level of success is because the world is out to get them versus they haven't worked hard enough. Is that right? Right, right. That's, 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 that's a component of it. So it's like, are you where you are in life around your relationship satisfaction, your financial health because of things totally outside of your control? Or can you dig around and find something to blame, your, blame on yourself? I mean, to me, that's where the value is. And it's not about beating yourself up. Again, like our financial mess makes total sense based on where we come from. But understand that, that that is your mindset. And certainly you got it honestly, 
But since it is your mindset, you can change it. And so looking at whether, and, and I think failure is even more important. It's like, so I failed at investing when I was 29. I made every bad mistake. Now, in, in that moment in time, I could blame the school system because they didn't teach me. I could blame greedy people on Wall Street. I could blame the system that was rigged against poor people. I could, I could definitely do that. And, and the, the tempting thing to do, it's so tempting because you, we can always find people who deserve the blame too. I mean, we really can. Like, like quite often, it is my wife's fault that I'm upset. <laughs> um, but I'm going to tell you right now, the most effective strategy is for me to say, so my wife and I are, aren't getting along well. What am I doing in this situation? Sure, she's doing her thing, yes. She's not perfect, but what can I do to make it better? Where, where did I go wrong? And what studies have found is that people able to climb the socioeconomic ladder who do better, they are more inclined to say, okay, great, great, great. All this stuff is happening, but what can I take responsibility for? And, and not only that, but they get excited about finding something they can pin on themselves. It's actually really freeing because it's like, if, I, if the reason I'm where I'm at is because of me, I can do something about it. I think so. And it's something I, it's something I try to do in every area of my life. I'm constantly looking to blame myself for everything. So do you think that everyone can build wealth and move socioeconomic ladders? Or do you think that there are some external circumstances that would prevent people from doing that? Well, first of all, I believe everyone listening to this podcast right now can. I honestly believe it. And that's not to say that there isn't going to be um, major, major struggles along the way. Actually, studies found that the average millionaire has had about three financial catastrophes in their life. So it, it's not like you're not going to have some catastrophes along the way and make some mistakes along the way. But the formula is so simple. And I used to work in high schools and I would, I would work with kids working in fast food. And I'd be like, look, you can become a millionaire. And it's, it's, like, and it, it, it's not that difficult at all. And the formula I always use is, you know, if you invested $5 a day, and just got average stock market returns, so you just have it in an index fund, it's a million dollars in 42 years. I mean, so to me, I think that everyone can come up with an extra $5 a day. But you know what the objections would be, right? 42 years. <laughs> and so I always say, well, do, do $6 a day. Get there faster. <laughs> $7, $8. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, whatever it is you want. You know, and, and so the message I'm trying to promote is you know, start investing early, you know, go, go after a percentage of every dollar you make. Do it, do it as soon as you're getting out of school. As soon as you get your first job, you won't even feel it. Like when I got my first job, I was making like, after, after school, I was making like 35000 a year in my internship. And I, I thought I was rich. It was so easy for me to like invest 30%. I've been poor my entire life. And so if, if you can get that going early, you're hardly going to feel it. And you're, you're just basically going to be an automatic millionaire. What do you wish you could have told your 20-year-old self about money? I think I would have really tried to, I mean, number one, I, I would have done the work around what was it like for me growing up around money? Like, what was it truly like? And to really think about what messages did I get from my parents and how is this possibly going to play out? Because, you know, all the mistakes I made around money were me living out a script that my parents and grandparents were living it's very apparent that the way that you're raised and the discussions that you hear around money impact you later on. So how can the people listening think about how to raise this next generation in a way where those children will grow up and have a good relationship with money? Yeah, you had mentioned this earlier that money is a huge taboo topic in our culture. And actually studies show that parents would rather talk to their kids about sex than about money which is crazy. I have two kids. You think I wanted to have that conversation with them? <laughs> so I think the biggest problem is we avoid talking about it. And we avoid talking about it because we're stressed. 
Like it's seven to eight out of 10 Americans say that money is the biggest source of stress in their lives. And so we don't want to feel stressed, so we want to avoid the topic. And so the biggest mistake we make is not talking about it with our kids. So that's number one. Don't be afraid to talk about it. It's okay to talk about what you did wrong. This is a huge opportunity for you. But you're, just understand this, that young people are picking up messages around money from you constantly by what you say, what you don't say. For example, one of the things I don't think it's a good idea to say is that, well, we can't afford that. I don't think that's a great idea to say it because a lot of times when I see that situation, I, I could say, well, what if you sold your house? You know, could you then afford a trip to Disney World? He's like, well, yeah, that's all right. So this is a matter of priorities, right? So when, when a child is wanting something that you don't think you should buy, or if you feel like you can't afford it, it's an opportunity for you to talk about values. You know, mm. well, well, we're, we're choosing not to spend our money that way. Why is that? Well, because we're setting aside this money for your education. We're setting aside this money for retirement. What's that? Well, that means where you don't have to worry about me when I'm older. You don't have to take care of me because I'll be able to take care of myself. It's an opportunity for you to talk about values with your kids. The other thing is to really think about how are kids experiencing money? So let's say that you want to instill a savings habit in your child. Do they see you saving money? And the answer is probably not. And so think about a purchase, whether it's a new TV or whatever, and then do something visual, like have a jar, you know, where we're going to put money in here every month and, or show them an app where you're, they're seeing the money going in there. Think about how it is you want them to experience it, what lessons you want to teach them. That is so good. What about those like negative, very hard, but inevitable conversations around money? Like someone gets laid off. Is that something that your children should be exposed mm. to? Yeah, so first of all, that's a great question because hard things happen. So the key here, and I've done studies on this too, like we call it um, financial enmeshment, where you like give too much information to your kids because you don't want to do that because it'll make them feel special, but it also makes them feel insecure. And I've worked with a lot of adults whose parents did that and it led to a whole lifetime of insecurity around money. So you don't want to give them stuff that they can't handle. So you want to say, you want to come from more of a position of, um, empowerment around like, hey, look, we're going through a, a difficult financial time right now. You know, mom, dad lost their job. And so we're going to be cutting down on things. So kids are going to be looking to you saying, okay, so should I be scared? And then you might want to involve them in something that they can help with. So, you know, we're all going to help using coupons. So what are those? Well, let me, let me talk about those. Or we're going to start cooking in more. So I want everyone to pick a meal and help with the meal. So, you know, lying to your children, they're going to pick up on the fact that there's some stress and some changes. You're downsizing your house. I mean, they're going to pick up on this. But try to um, basically cry to your therapist and, and, and do, process all your emotions with an adult and then come to your kids with, this is what's happened and this is how we're gonna tackle it. Cause that's an opportunity for you to show them how you handle difficult financial times, which chances are they're going to have at some point too. Thinking about your childhood growing up, what are some of the conversations about around money, the things that you were taught that your parents did well that you are now doing for your children? Mm. And what are some things that you are doing the total opposite with? Yeah, so you know, my childhood was a hot mess and my parents divorced when I was two and they just constantly fought around money and there was never enough money, I mean, after a situation like that. So much of it was bad, just to be quite honest with you, except my mom was super frugal and she was very afraid of not having enough money. And so there's a downside to that around the scarcity mindset, but the upside was that I, I paid really close attention to money. Like I, I looked at it as a valuable resource and I was afraid to spend it. And again, this is something I've had to balance out over time. My wife helped me balance that out because she came from a little bit different side of the fence, uh, which is good. 
I'm, I'm getting nervous talking about it because thinking that she wants to buy something right now. Um, <laughs> but like, for example, when I met her, I, I was living in a house that had no furniture. I had lawn chairs. I, I mean, I had two forks, you know. And she's like, you know, a couch would be nice. And I'm like, what, a couch? How, you know, how extravagant. So the great thing about that is she's really helped balance me out in that sense. So part of my journey around money is uh, sort of the enjoy the day. So the average American ha- is enjoying the day way too much, you know, and not thinking about the future. I've had to work to enjoy the day because really money is meant for the future and it's also meant to be enjoyed today. And I I truly believe that because we're not sure what's gonna happen tomorrow. But the problem people usually make is that they're doing all of one and none of the other. And so I think it's about finding balance. I wanna, I've never done this before, but I kind of wanna do like a rapid fire where I tell you the biggest reasons that people have told me about why they will not be successful when it comes to money. And I want you to tell me what you would say to them, okay? Okay. So one is, it's too late for me to start. Yes, well, I mean, that's somebody who's done some education around, you know, the importance of saving early. But people have a a timeline that's very distorted when it comes to that. And so I would say it's never too late because think about this in terms of multi-generational wealth too. So quite often people say that when they're in their 40s and it's like, too late. You know, like, I mean, statistically speaking, you've got another 40, 50 years and you can make, you can cover a lot of ground when it comes to that. I don't know how to start investing. Yes. Great. So first of all, I mean, I love it when people ask that because it's like, clearly you feel like you need to start investing. Um, And so I would point people to uh, books like Ramit Sethi's, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Great formulas in there. um, And it's much, much easier than people people think it is. And so I, I don't give financial advice, but people like Ramit would say, you know, look into something like a target date fund where it's just one fund and then your mission is to set aside as much as you possibly can in there and, and you'll outperform most people. I don't make enough money. Absolutely. So there's two sides to this coin. One is much more exciting than the other. The first is cutting expenses. And, you know, th- this is, can be a challenge because we get accustomed to a certain standard of living, you know, go ahead and get three roommates, you know, that'll cut down your expenses a lot, you know, and there's lots of cuts you can make, but I think it's much more fun to look at how can I bring in more money, whether it's a side hustle, whether it's looking to negotiate a raise, whether it's planning for the future, how can I get further educationally to make more money? Beautiful. You did a good job with my rapid fire. (laughs) I was sweating. (laughs) (laughs) With the studying of the psychology of money, what's the one thing that you've discovered that gave you the biggest aha moment? I mean, for me, it was my family history around money. And I found it so empowering because I felt lost. I felt like I didn't know anything. I felt like I was starting from scratch. And it was so incredibly powerful to me to realize I'm not starting from scratch. I'm actually playing out generations of beliefs around money. And I started to look at it from that generational perspective. And it just got me so pumped because I'm like, look, you know, my family didn't do things right around money, but they got me to this point. And it's my job to take the football and to just run down the field and see how far I can get for my kids. And I, I really saw it as a generational wealth building thing versus just an individual. I found it so empowering. And, you know, with every financial success I have, I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm doing it for grandpa. That was beautiful. So the podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Dr. Brad. So what do you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Dr. Brad taught me this? Ooh, that's good. I would say Dr. Brad taught me that my financial mess is not because I'm lazy, crazy, or stupid. It actually makes perfect sense given where I came from. And now that I understand that, I can now look to where I want to be and I can figure out what is the mindset of those people and what is the pattern they took. By the way, th- this is all, you can replicate this. It's, it's not, 
It's not a mystery. You just need to find where you want to be. And then I can model sort of the steps they took and I can get there and I can absolutely achieve it. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Brad. Thank you. This was amazing. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.